The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make cities better. Standing in for Andrew Tuck this week, I'm your host, Tom Edwards. Coming up on this episode... I think the most important thing is dialogue and inventiveness. The dialogue is so important to understand what the people really are looking for. Valencia was very interesting for me because they did not want a park that was for Europe. They wanted a park for Valencia. The chairs may be stacked, the croissant crumbs swept aside and almost all of the champagne glasses safely back on shelves. But Paris is still ringing in our ears here at Monocle. Last week, the team decamped to the French capital for our annual Quality of Life conference and we've arrived back with fresh ideas and plenty of inspiring stories of how to make our cities better. From urbanists to editors, architects to entrepreneurs, the stage was buzzing with tales of how to improve the built environment. So we decided this week to bring you some highlights from the event, hopefully leaving you just as excited as we are about what's next for our cities. All that then is coming up in the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Tom Edwards. So a warm welcome to the programme. This year's Quality of Life conference was full of inspiration from every field. One session that really whet our urbanist appetites was just after the morning coffee break. This section saw a special focus on cities and two of the most inspirational and determined speakers of the day joined us in the form of the architects Lena Gottmeh and Catherine Gustafsson. Lena's the founder of Lena Gottmer Atelier, and Catherine's a founding partner at Gustafsson, Porter and Bowman. The two kept the crowd entranced with their wise words about what makes a city truly exceptional and how they help to create great places to live. The question is really a holistic thinking. You have to look at the place, listen to the place. We used to do architecture as objects that just like parachute on a, on a place and they're self-referential, they're climatized by themselves, they have their own environment. And today we have to really think about the place. We have to think what the place tells us in terms of its fabric first. What does it tell us in terms of its climate? Like in Beirut, it's a Mediterranean climate, it's hot in the summer, so we cannot just build a skyscraper 
skyscraper in glass. So I ended up doing this kind of uh, almost vernacular tower with more like uh, openings that are measured to the outside where nature is part of it because it creates a better climate for the housing inside. Thinking also of you know, incorporating vegetation, not in a way that even makes the whole building heavier, but more thinking of it as part of the structure. It's really like giving the poetics also of living, daily living. I think it's very much what you said. It's understanding the place, where you're going to be. This, uh, whether it's Valencia, whether it's Beirut, uh, really getting inside that place. I think the most important thing is dialogue and inventiveness. The dialogue is so important to understand what the people really are looking for. Valencia was very interesting for me because they did not want a park that was for Europe. They wanted a park for Valencia. And so understanding what is Valencia. Now, we were so energised by that conversation that we invited them to join us fresh from the stage to discuss in a little more detail. Here is Lena and Catherine in conversation with Monocle's Gillian Tobias. As we're in Paris, I think for our listeners, what I'd like to do each is ask you a little bit about the projects you're working on in Paris. Perhaps you can talk a little bit about the Montparnasse project you're working on. Lena? There are three projects mainly that we are uh, developing at the moment in uh, Paris. One is Montparnasse and the project of Montparnasse is about connecting the ground actually of that development back to the city. As you know, it's a shopping center at the moment with a commercial like kind of center, but it's really dissociated from the rest of the city. It's a very difficult part of Paris. Suddenly you feel like lost between the large streets of the cars. And our idea is to kind of bring the flow back into the heart of Montparnasse, bringing back nature as well. There are more like than 1,000 trees that will be planted. We're working with landscape architect Michel Devigne on that project. So really healing and, in a way, bringing back more green part at the heart of uh, the city of Paris and through that landscape also stitching back that part to the city. Another project that is really emblematic also of all this uh, transition into ecological developments that we're doing is this tower in the 13th, which is a wooden uh, structure. And it's a whole project that is around sustainable feeding. So we had a blank page and we wanted to develop a whole program that talks about a circular economy and our relationship to food and how to have a place where you can plant, you can crop, you can eat, you can teach about how to eat in a more sustainable way and in a way also bringing more awareness about like the waste that has been occurring in the food industry and through that awareness building another relationship with our environment. So it's really like a kind of a mixed-use development. You don't live only in a building or work in a building, but you just live, work, plant, exchange. So it's really like a lively place. And the third one is for the Olympic development. And here we're doing like housing for athletes, and it's a wooden construction uh, project with biosourced materials and low-carbon construction. Well, Catherine, we're in one of the most iconic cities in the world, and you're working on a project in one of the most iconic locations in this city. Can you tell us a little bit about your Champ de Mars project? It's actually called One Site, and it's uh, trying to connect the left bank and the right bank and make the river part of the park, because we have parks on both sides, and trying to make it that when I talk about one, I want the same quality the same quality 
from one end to the other, the same materials, the same care. Because Paris has different arrondissements, maybe one arrondissement gets more care than the other. No, this is a national piece. This is a really important piece where you have 10 million people a year and the site can't take it. It's being compacted, it's broken, it needs to be fixed environmentally. And I haven't worked in Paris for a long time and it's been fascinating. I'm educated here, I lived here. And it's been fascinating to plunge back into France and try to figure out how do we work in France because I've been working all over the world. And it's been really an eye-opener for me as far as I've never done a lot of historical gardens, but I started doing them at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., also in Beirut on the Garden of Forgiveness and Archaeology and Abu Dhabi. And that history is so rich that it's wonderful to work with. And I'm hoping now we're starting to look at other projects in France and trying to say, okay, what else can we do? What else can we do here? And can we make it work? Alina, I was interested. I think you've said that you view the work you do a little bit like being archaeologists of the future. And I want to hear from you a little bit more about how important research is for you, but the kind of heart and soul you put into a project that it is going to have resonance long into the future. Yeah, I think like the question of archaeology of the future is about how to kind of bring roots into a construction, into a new architecture that would become a place, actually, in a certain context. So how do you root it? What kind of roots do you understand of the place? So this is why it's archaeology. It's like you're digging and you're trying to find traces of what existed already and why did they exist, and then reinterpreting these and bringing them into a new figure. There is always a newness. There is always something that is enchanting that an architect wants to bring and kind of a new experience because that's what makes a space pleasurable. But there's always a kind of uh, relationship with the memory of the place. And when I'm talking about memory, we're talking also about environment and all what exists. And a place is never empty. We think sometimes that we are building in the desert. Oh, it's an empty place. No, it's full of life. All the uh, like microscopic uh, beings that exist there and that we don't barely see in the eye. So it's about like rendering the invisible visible in a new form. You talked about how someone asked you once, what makes a game changer? I wonder if you can touch on this now for our listeners, some of those thoughts. I found them really stimulating. I think a game changer in any kind of design that is designed, used by people, is that someone has understood how the society has changed and how society uses, lives differently and finding innovation, a way to accommodate that change and make it self-evident. And so game changers are kind of like, duh, okay, of course it works. Then everybody uses it because it's self-evident. But it's not self-evident until it happens. And you also were talking about the importance of fearlessness in the work you do. It's funny, the word fearless, I, I know I'm fearless, but I think we all are fearless in many ways in that when we do our research, when we think about it, when we draw, we draw it for a reason, and we believe in it, and so we're going to defend it. And we are fearless defending it. Now, there's obstacles that happen. There are financial, political, other obstacles, and you 
try to predict those before you start. You try to embrace them and work with them when you can. So far, I've always been able to work with them and find a way forward. So I think Fearless is so much about the preparation you do in the beginning to make sure that you really believe in what you do and that it actually is doable. It's not some pie in the sky type of thing. It's you can actually build this thing and you can actually build it on the time scale that's important. Lena Catherine was mentioning the preparation you do before. As a journalist, I love the research process and I would imagine for you the research process is very important and I also wonder where you go for inspiration. When I have to design a museum, for example, I try to understand what is a museum. I cannot draw something before I understand, like, what is a museum typology? Where did it come from, actually? What the Egyptians had done and what a pyramid means? And is it actually the ancestor of the museum shape? And that gives you a lot of insight on how to transform that typology and what to bring new as well. So architecture is not only about a form, like a shape that you're giving to a typology that is fixed, it's about questions that typology and bringing something that is ancestrally present in there and bringing it anew in a different shape and trying to federate new relationships through that new shape that you're bringing. So that's where research comes in. So it's really understanding also the context. If I have to build in Estonia, it's a country that had gone through Soviet occupation until 91, and building a museum for them is also about the quest of identity. But what is identity? Is identity fixed? Can I just build a project that is completely closed and independent? It's just an icon or it should really foster for an identity that is constantly alive. And in that sense, it became an open platform where people can gather on the roof. They could constantly re-question identity and make it uh, build it through that space. So research comes actually to question the status quo and to bring uh, what is essential in a place and project it into a new future in a certain way. And Catherine, how important is dialogue, conversations, going to unknown places maybe and having unknown conversations to helping you think differently about projects? I think they're essential. I personally start with non-dialogue and research and trying to understand where am I and why, what is the history. And then when you get this mass of questions, then you start talking and saying, you know, did I understand this? What is this? And somebody else would come here and say, have you thought about this? Have you seen this? And it's fantastic. They say, you've got to go see this. You've got to, you know, live this. And having people of a city like Beirut or Valencia say, come look at this. And all of a sudden you get a sense of scale of that place. And I think every place has a sense of scale that's different. And the relationship to the body is different. And I think that is really important to understand. Somebody in Texas is not going to have the same scale as somebody in Osaka. And so really understanding the scale of spaces that make people comfortable and what they feel is part of their heritage and their identity is very interesting, and they need to lead you there. Finally, I'm going to ask you each the same question because the Monocle Quality of Life Conference is very much about opportunities. And I just wonder, for each of you, what excites you about the opportunities and the challenges that lie ahead? 
the opportunities. Maybe in visionaries, like in visionary collaborations, it's really uh, always the most outstanding projects are projects where it's about a venture, almost a utopic venture, like a client comes to me and it's really out of a box project, like uh, someone who dreams about something that really does not sometimes make sense. And then it becomes an amazing project. Like the project of Beirut, it started with an encounter of a photographer. He has a land, he doesn't know what to do with it, and just told me, let's do something. And okay, you're faced with the land, and you have to understand. And it's just like manufacture, like kind of build up a project out of nothing. Or a country like Estonia and Tartu, 100,000 inhabitants building a 40,000 square meter museum is really not logical, it doesn't make sense. So maybe looking at moments that are emotionally driven, that are visionary, that are utopic, and thinking that this is actually the reality that we can build. Catherine, <laughs> where do you see the opportunities? What would excite you next? Landscape. You know, when the man talks about fixing a river, yes. You know, big landscapes. I can do a courtyard if you really need it, but I really like big, complicated landscapes. <laughs> and the bigger and the more complicated they are, it's just so wonderful to work at that scale. Also, I like working with water a lot. And so natural water, water that is irrigation, Valencia is all channels from the moors. I was raised in a community that was a high plateau desert. All the water came from the mountains and channels. And so I was raised with controlled water and how water feeds human beings and feeds landscapes and how, how it's sacred. So I think anything that's big landscape with water, I'm kind of sure. <laughs> Lena Gottmer and Catherine Gustafsson. They're talking to Gillian Tobias in Paris. Back in September 2021 here on The Urbanist, we featured the Dutch architect who was charged with designing the only permanent building that's being erected for the Paris 2024 Olympic Games. Ton van Hoven from Van Hoven CS told us back then all about plans for the new aquatic centre and how it would influence the surrounding neighbourhood of Saint-Denis. So, how have plans been progressing? And will the project still deliver on the promises it made to the surrounding community? Ton joined this show's regular host, Andrew Tuck, on stage to explain more. Our site, uh, next to the Stade de France, is uh, in the middle of the crossing of the A68 and the A1. So, it's really impossible for people living in Saint-Denis to cross the street, because if you want to cross to the other side, you need to have a car. Most people don't have cars. So one of the essential things to fix in this area is to make the connections between the different parts of the city. Also, what is very important, the unemployment in Saint-Denis is sky high. There are lots of uh, societal issues. Uh, A lot of people who don't know how to swim, for example. So to fix all these issues by means of making this new building and the organization in it, that's uh, really the huge challenge. The building behind is the Stade de France. Now, this is an amazing building, iconic for Paris, but also a bit of a disaster as a building because unless there's a football match on or an event, it's closed. How are you going to make sure that your building isn't just another sporting white elephant we've seen so many of? I think it was a fantastic choice of the uh, metropolitan region of Paris to 
create a competition which includes not only the architectural design but also the finance to maintain the operate and all these aspects and that means that during the competition which lasted something like one and a half year we also optimized operations in the building which means that we have lots of facilities in the building which are operating the entire week and the entire year so kids will come here to climb to do urban sports they can play padel they can meet other kids people in Saint Denis will have jobs in teaching children how to swim sport now yesterday Tony you talked me through some of the design decisions so of course like everywhere else it's like how do you make this building that is going to be good for the environment use less energy and actually you might not guess it but just the unusual shape of the building hints at lots of the solutions you come up to. Explain to us why it has the ceiling like this, yeah. why even the, the diving pool is not flat at the bottom. Explain some of the decisions you've taken. Yeah, we try to optimize all the aspects of material use and also the environmental, the CO2 emissions, and not only during construction, but also during the operations 50 years long. And uh, with this uh, hanging roof, we can create a hanging roof 50 centimeters high with a span of 90 meters. So it is really incredible because normally you would need a truss which is 8 meters high, 9 meters high. And you would also have to condition all the air under that uh, ceiling for the next 50 years. So with a hanging roof we could optimize the content of the space uh, which also minimizes a lot of uh, CO2 emissions. With a wood, with a timber construction, of course we store CO2, keep it out of the air for as long as the building lasts. And even after the building is uh, maybe demolished, you never know, the wood can still be reused in other projects. Ton, legacy, it's always the question that comes up to do with the Olympics. Someone said to me last night, do you know there's not a single Olympic Games that's ever actually made a city fitter, more sporty? But is that really the legacy you're after here? When, when the city has spoken to you, when the, the sporting authorities have spoken to you, what do they want the legacy of this project to be? A prosperous Saint-Denis, to summarize everything, which means that uh, all the people living in Saint-Denis, they benefit from this uh, facility, that the kids are not, no longer afraid to go out in the road, because, in the streets, because it's unsafe, but they go there to play, to meet other people, get this sort of center where you can always meet people and uh, enjoy life. Ton Venhoven joining Andrew Turk on stage there at last week's Monocle Quality of Life conference in Paris. So we've heard there how the city enlists the talent of architects and designers hailing from beyond the arrondissement. But how do they ship their own design ethos out to the rest of the world? Well, Paris-based architecture and interiors firm Studio KO has its signature on projects in cities from Marrakesh to New York, but it's increasingly finding that its focus is shifting more towards the impact its work has on the planet, a conversation going on in all cities at this time when proposing new buildings and developments. We assessed Studio KO's growing emphasis on environmental impact through the lens of a new hospitality project in Portugal, where the French firm is showing how sensitivity and design trumps showiness every time. 
Monocle's Nolan Giles invited Olivier Marty, the co-founder of Studio KO, on stage to discuss more. Olivier began by describing his own design philosophy. For 20 years, we've been uh, lucky enough to be commissioned for residences, which in the life of an architect is something which is very desirable because it doesn't have the same constraints as bigger projects. And for 20 years, we've been given problematics that were concerning pristine lands most of the time in natural reserves in many different countries of the world. And gradually, we managed to see how this experience on smaller buildings related to nature could expand to other fields such as art, so the Museum Museo is an example, or more public projects such as hospitality, and how the experience we learn from smaller scale and little constraint could expand to bigger scale and more constraint. So now let's go to the beach. I would love to go to the beach. It's my favorite place in the world, obviously being an Australian. Where are we? Which beach are we at? We are in Portugal, on the seashore, south of Lisbon. Probably many of you might know the place near the little village of Comporta, which became one of the spots of where to go. It's not in the village, it's a bit north of it, at the beginning of a peninsula, which used to be very wild and protected. The north of it has been pretty much damaged in the 1980s by a very, very discussable construction with high-rise. The middle portion has been constructed with not-so-good little houses about 15 years ago. And there's a big portion which is untouched for now, which had a license to build. A few years ago, we were asked to think about an architectural study for a hotel development on this land. This land is 100, 200, 300, depending on which plot you take, hectares. So it's very vast. And it has an authorization of construction pretty consistent with many, many keys, many, many square meters. And gradually, we went much, much lower than what was allowed. But in the first place, when we discovered this land, Carl, my partner, went first without me, with Nabil from the office, and he went back to me and he said to me, you know what, I'm not sure we should ever build there mm. because it's sand, it's lichens, it's little animals, it's little birds that do their life inside of that. I'm not sure. And we tried to express that to the client with different words. And then the client chose us because we said we wouldn't build there. So, and then second stage is I go once the client chooses us. And looking at the site, my opinion is slightly different from Carl. I think that, first of all, you have two-thirds of it which are damaged. So there is space for enhancement, improvement. And then gradually I say probably there's a way to improve, to reveal, to do something to that land which would not only be good for the guests and the money and the business, but as well for the land and for the history. And there had been buildings on the site before, as we can see. I love this idea about not wanting to damage anything, but at the same time enhance the landscape. You found these ruins on the site and you thought, it's been done before, maybe not as well as what you guys are going to do. But what were the real opportunities on the site and how did these ruins inform what you were going to do? The first thing is because the experience we had in Morocco a while ago was kind of easier because Morocco is a country where vernacular architecture is very strong. You have villages and very abstract shapes which can even speak today. In that case, this land should have never have anything built on it because it's wild. It's not really welcoming for human settlements because it's really by the sea. But during the first or second trip, we discovered those ruins about two miles away 
on the same sand, on the same landscape, which is a 2,000-year-old Roman ruins, which was an industrial site of fish sauce production. And when we discovered this example of a material collision between the sand, the nature, and something mineral that's permanent, that is not a wooden cabin that pretends it's going to disappear into 20 years, this is 2,000 years old. We realized how soft, interesting, beautiful, harmonious, something made of stone and concrete and terracotta could speak to the site. And this was probably the confirmation that there was something to do building permanently on this sandy soil. This is an overall master plan that shows there's more emptiness than built areas. There was already some areas which we call potatoes, which were constructible areas, and gradually we removed many of them. There are zones which are occupied by architectural objects. Most of it is empty, and the idea is to go from a very strong architectural moment to something really wild and back again to that. Why is this what people want today? Why are you know, people who want a luxury travel experience keen to just be plopped into the wilderness and experience you know, nature in a way that feels quite raw? We believe in not only in hospitality, but in general. I think what people should be offered when they travel is to be somewhere that doesn't resemble anything else next to it. So it's the question of the site, of where you are, about the anti-globalization. Of course, we're all globalized. We travel. We know a lot of everything in the world. But if I go somewhere, I want to feel it so strongly anchored into my fantasy of Portugal, my fantasy of this nature. So the rougher it gets, the realest it gets. So it's about being real, it's about hospitality, not being a gimmicky a refabrication of something, but something real, not something remade. Olivier Marty of Studio KO there, on stage with Monocle's own Nolan Giles. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of The Urbanist. Get your weekly fix of built environment news, as well as our weekly sister show, Tall Stories, by subscribing to the programme. You can find The Urbanist on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and of course at trustyoldmonocle.com. Today's programme was produced by Carlotta Ribello and by David Stevens. David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Blue Toucan with Flashback. Thanks for listening, city lovers.